my wife last night if I should preach a final sermon next week even though it's the first week of Advent and uh, she said no so <laughs> not gonna and but I am gonna try to conclude some have some concluding remarks this morning for us um, the final petition of the Lord's Prayer this morning is lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. Um, But again, like I have done the last several weeks, I will read to us the whole of the section on the Lord's Prayer. So here is God's Word. It is eternally true. When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners so that they might be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who is in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. For your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not to temptation. But deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Let's ask for His help this morning. Father, we need You, just like we always do. And so we pray that Your Spirit would come, that He would guide us into all truth, that He would keep my mouth straight and pure, and that He would keep our hearts trained on You. We pray this in His name. Amen. A refrain that I've had for the whole sermon is that we pray for the things God has promised and then we actually have to do the things we pray for. And this is no different than that. But it's a little bit unusual, I think, in that it seems on the surface to be different than the other two petitions. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts. Because... We know, even if we might not know where it's located, that the truth that God does not tempt anyone. That's from James. So if we know that, and we're praying, do not lead us into temptation, it seems as though we're double speaking. But just think about the other things that we pray for. They are all things God has told us are true. I own the cattle on a thousand hills. Not a bird falls from the air apart from me. Well, of course, he talks about providing for us, giving us our daily bread, and yet we still ask for it. He wants us to ask for it. And he has given us the biggest, greatest promise that he will forgive us our debts if we confess our sins. And so, why do we pray that you would forgive us our debts? Why do we actually say that? Why don't we just confess our sins? But why do we say, please Forgive me, I need your forgiveness. Why don't we just say, I've done wrong, and then he'll take care of the rest. Well, it's because we pray as God has directed us. And so here we have this 
lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And God has promised over and over that he will keep his people. That he will not lead us into destruction. And he's given us promises both ways. Both James is, God does not tempt anyone. And the sorts of things that God has, God will complete the work he has begun in you. So both positive and negative statements that God will keep us. And yet, over and over, we are reminded that there is this reality of temptation and sin. And we are given many warnings that one of the things that Christians are prone to do, one of the things believers are prone to do, is to think ourselves unbreakable untemptable, not going to do that. And it comes out in a, in a lot of ways. Um, mostly it comes out whenever we see a pastor or a politician especially do something treacherous and we think immediately, I would never do that. That's so wicked. Because it's not the sin that we are prone to. And it could be anything that you particularly don't think yourself prone to. And that pride, God comes at a thousand ways. And that's really one of the main things that happens in the Lord's Prayer. I looked up this guy, just so you know, this Cusnel, Quesnel, that I quoted from a couple weeks ago that I didn't know who he was. Uh, he was a Roman Catholic from like the 1600s, 1700s. Um, who was a Jansenist, which is basically like the believing Roman Catholics from the time. They were like outcasts of the Roman Catholic Church. Here's what he says about prayer. Prayer is not intended to inform God, but to set before man his misery, and to humble his heart, and to awaken his desires, to kindle his faith, to encourage his hope, to raise his soul toward heaven, to remind him that his Father, his home, and his eternal inheritance are above. That's just good. It's just really good. Lead us not into temptation is a humbling prayer. Because it says, I am not able. Over and over, I am, I am not able. The... You could magnify examples, but um, one of the things that I talk about often is this passage from 1 Corinthians, and you may not know I talk about it often, but you'll hear it when I read it to you. Uh, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers, meaning like Moses, our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us so that we might not desire evil as they Those things took place as examples for us so that we would not desire evil as they did. What we generally do, and I've talked about this 
very often, is when we read the stories of the Old Testament, what happened to the saints of old, generally what we do is we think, well, I wouldn't have been the rebellious one. That wouldn't have been me. I would not have been Korah in the rebellion. I would have been the good ones. I would have not taken the plunder from the city and caused the destruction of the people at Ai. I would have been the ones who left it all. I would have not been like Aaron and Miriam. I would have been like Moses. Um, This is how we tend to think. And yet, this section of Scripture that I just started to read ends with, therefore, and this will be a familiar verse. Again, there's a familiar verse here, but listen to what happens before it. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. The whole point of the Old Testament and all the things recorded in it, not the whole point, but a big point of the Old Testament and all the things recorded in it, are to say to you, take heed lest you fall. You are not invincible to sin. You are dependent all the time on God's holy hand keeping you all the time from falling into worse and worse things. Therefore, take heed lest you fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. That's the verse we all know. And we think of it as a promise, but it's actually part of a rebuke to say, you're not any different than all these other scouts you read about. It's not to say, it's the point of no temptation has overtaken you, which is not common to man, is not to just go, I'm just like everyone else and I don't have to feel bad. The whole point is, you think they're idiots when you read about them. You too are an idiot. That's the point. That's what he means. No temptation has overtaken you is not a like comforting thing. It's to say, wake up. You are just like everyone else. And you are in need of something. And the thing you are in need of is God's keeping you. God is faithful. This is the continuing on. And He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. There's the promise. And the promise is found in the Lord's Prayer that you would pray that He would not let you stumble in your weakness. God has promised over and over to keep us. Over and over to keep us. And this prayer, leading me not into temptation, is different yet than the prayer, forgive us of our debts. If we can get to that point, regularly confessing and asking God to forgive us, this is an additional step of faith. Because oftentimes, as you grow old in the faith, you don't have one-off sins. Like things you never did before. Like, oh, that's a new one. I've discovered a new way to err. That actually would be somewhat comforting for the Christian. Like, oh, this is a new thing. I can confess this freely. It's really hard to confess the same sorts of sins all the time, year after year, decade after decade. It's really hard. And it's doubly hard when you actually get to the point where you say, lead me not into the same things. It's hard enough to say, God, forgive me, I did it again. 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 But then to have the extra humiliation to just go, I am not able to keep myself from going there. 
lead me not into temptation. Deliver me from evil. There is some debate on whether it's deliver me from evil or from the evil one. The general consensus over history is that it's the evil one. Uh, I would say probably 80-20 is deliver me from the evil one, meaning the devil. It's similar to Jesus' prayer in John 17. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. But either way you take it, whether it's from evil or the evil one, they all kind of have the same end, and so you're praying for the same sort of thing. But I think the idea that it's from the evil one is particularly helpful to get us out of ourselves. Because we all know, intrinsically I think, that we, if we were left to ourselves, would fall in a battle with the evil one. We would not be able to stand. Like if we, this afternoon, were confronted by the devil as he confronted Christ in the desert and said, throw yourself down or I will give you all the kingdoms of the world, we would take the bait. And we know it. We know that. And so that sobers us up to the reality that all the time this is the problem. There is all the time the evil one and his minions working against the saints of God to cause them to go down holes of sin. And we don't have the ability to fight that fight. Even as saints, we do not have the power to fight against the unseen evils that exist. We battle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and rulers of darkness. This stuff came up this morning just by God's providence and questions that were asked at the end of Sunday school. This is just true. We have a very big problem, and God has promised to keep us, but we actually have to ask Him to do it. He will will let us go very far out on the plank. He will redeem us in the end if we are His, but it will be an unpleasant redemption. Uh, We will look like fools much of our lives if we do this sorts of thing, if we don't think ourselves capable of all kinds of sins. Another warning God gives to his people, and I'm just going to read a few of these, um, but this is throughout the New Testament, these sorts of warnings. In the book of Romans, in chapter 11, it's talking about how Israel's branches were broken off and the, in, the Gentiles were grafted in. And what was happening was because the Gentiles were being grafted in and the Jews were being broken off, the Gentiles were saying, we're kind of the more important ones because we're like in. And so Paul says to the Romans, the Roman Christians, then he will say, well, branches were broken off so that we might be grafted in. Eh, That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. The fear of God drives his saints to prayer. Again, consider this from the book of Hebrews. 
For if we go on sinning deliberately, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses died without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and who has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now remember, these are warnings not written to the world, but to us, the people of God. Because we are tempted to think, I'm in, I'm good, nothing to worry about. God has promised to keep me to the end. I don't have to think about anything anymore. The Lord's Prayer teaches us that in fact we ought to be regularly praying that God would keep us and would keep us from stumbling and would not lead us into temptation because we will not stand. We cannot stand. We do not have the ability to stand unless God himself makes us stand. God's fiercest warnings are always to his children. And so when we read them, our temptation, like when I just read that to you, Your temptation is just to go, yeah, but that's for somebody else. Somebody else needs to be afraid right now. I don't have anything to be afraid about. That's our temptation. Whenever we read anything in the New Testament that comes at us about our sin and about our willingness to sin and our repetitiveness in sin, we immediately kind of just go, well, I'm good. Like, I don't need to worry about that passage. Those passages are written for us. All of us. Not them, but you. And they are written not because you will be condemned, but so that you will depend upon God to keep you and not on yourself. This is always the message one of the many helpful things that God has given to me in His Word personally is this passage from Luke chapter 22. Luke um, chapter 22, there's lots of things going on. It's right towards the end of Jesus' ministry. He's about to be betrayed. He's having discussions with His apostles. And they're saying, you know, we will not... We will not abandon you. We'll be with you to the end. We can drink the cup. All of these things are happening. And then Peter, um, Peter, always Peter, overbold, overconfident in his own self, like us. And Jesus turns and says to him, Simon, Simon, which is his other name, if you don't know, Simon, Peter. It's the same guy. Simon, Simon, I behold... Satan has demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Does that sound familiar? This is exactly what happened, or very similar to what happened to Job. Satan was out, walking around on the earth. He comes into the court. God says, what have you been doing? He's like, I've been out wandering around. And God says, have you considered my servant? Satan says, I will sift that guy 
and he will deny you. And God says, okay, sift away. Very similar sort of thing here. Satan has demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. He does not pray that he won't be sifted. He does not pray that he will not deny. He does not pray that Peter won't go into the court. He does not pray that Peter will just avoid the area. He does not pray any of that. He says, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen the brothers. And Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny me three times. We are all Peter. The only thing that saved Peter was the prayer of Christ. That is it. He was a hair's breadth from joining Judas. They were like sins. He didn't take the silver, but he did say, I want nothing to do with that guy. We are not friends. He is not with me. I am not with him. That's what he said. And he did it three times in the final time with a curse. Her temptation is to say, I would not. And so we ask us, ourselves these ridiculous games. You know, when Columbine happened, you guys remember Columbine 20-ish years ago, it hit my community particularly hard because my piano teacher was the grandmother of one of the girls who died confessing Christ. Everyone wanted to be thought of as the person who would say, I'm a Christian, and then take the bullet. As though that's the question. Are you strong enough to stand in the day of your death? That's not the question. It's a bad question. You will not stand unless Christ prays for you and Christ will pray for you if you beg him to not let you, to, to not let you fail. Please don't let me. I don't know that girl. I don't know really anything about her even though she was related to my piano teacher. She was dependent in the moment upon God himself giving her words. Not because she was so bold in her faith. Not because she had some extra ability within herself to stand in the day. We are dependent. We are dependent on God to help us stand in the day. A second way this comes, which is more tangible, and therefore more full of sin, uh, is in rebukes. Uh, it's why the book of Proverbs is so full of this sort of language. You have things like... I keep grabbing the wrong papers, I'm sorry. Faithful are the wounds of a friend... Iron sharpens iron, and one man sharpens another. Let a righteous man strike me. It is a kindness. Rebukes are extraordinarily hard ways that God deals with us in this prayer. Lead me not into temptation. Because rebukes are 
physical, verbal repudiations of pride that you are able to stand, that I am able to stand. And so therefore they are very hard to deal with. And they are full of sin on every side. Because we are quick to give rebukes often. Because we think, I know, he doesn't. And when we receive a rebuke, we often go, he doesn't know, I do. Both sides full of sin, and yet they are the way in which God consistently reminds his people. Do you pray that you would not be led into temptation? Do you trust in yourself or in me? Where is your trust? We quote the scripture, some trust in chariots, some trust in horses, but we will trust in the name of the Lord our God. We tend to think the chariots and the horses are like out there somewhere. They are our own chariots and horses. Some trust in their own chariots and horses. We trust in our own chariots and horses. We must be humbled to the begging prayer that God would keep us from these things. Do you distrust yourself is really the question that should come from things like Columbine. Do you distrust yourself that in the day that you will actually fail, that you will not have the strength to stand or say or do do you distrust yourself? And if the answer to that is no, I learn it from Scripture. God says, do not trust yourself. In many, many ways, in many places, He says, do not trust yourself. Perhaps nowhere more poignantly than in Jeremiah. I can get to it. The heart is deceitful above all things, desperately sick. Who can understand it? The, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind and give to every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Proverbs, there is a way that seems right unto a man, but its way is death. Now think about that proverb. Think about this word from Jeremiah. It seems right to a man. It is not as though the man thinks, what I'm about to do will lead to my death. He thinks, what I'm about to do will give me life and will be helpful. And I will survive and thrive and do well in the land. That's what he thinks. And that proverb is given to us not so that we can say, well, I'm not that man. I will not walk in the way of death. But to say, I am that man, I need wisdom not to walk in the way of death. And the only one who can give me that wisdom and help me not to do it is God. I do not have in myself the ability to do these things. One of the saddest examples of this in the Old Testament is the story of Samson. So Samson's parents, faithful mother, father, the angel of the Lord appears to them and says, I'm going to give you a son. And his mom kind of is like, I don't know what that means. Can you answer me again? And the angel comes back and explains more of what's going on. <laughs> and Because she's just humble. She's just like, I don't get it. You came and you told me, I don't understand. 
can you please come back and tell me a little bit more about what's going on? So the angel comes and explains more. And then Samson is born, and he's dedicated to the Lord. He's a Nazarite from birth, and he is a treacherous dude. Falls in many, many ways, in many, many times. And then this horrible thing happens at the end of his relationship with Delilah. She finally nags him enough that he confesses what will strip him of his power. And then he wakes up, and he does not know that the Spirit of the Lord has departed from him. That is, so I I read the story of Samson this week just by God's providence. It's where I'm at in my scripture reading. And it was a frightening verse to read. He did not know that the Spirit had departed. Not that the Spirit departed. That wasn't the frightening part. The frightening part was he did not know. He was so out of touch with God empowering him to be the leader of the people of Israel that he didn't know when it left. And that is this prayer. That is this prayer. I'm so unsure of myself that I am not certain I would even understand if you didn't do it. Do we have that kind of humility? Do I have that kind of humility? Do you have that kind of humility? Forgive us our debts. We do not. Forgive us our debts. Lead us not into temptation. The prayer that God gives to us is an axe to our pride and our self-righteousness and our self-trust. The whole thing. It is an absolute demolition to everything about us. And that really is the thing that is most striking about this prayer that we repeat so often. It is not easy to pray this way. Which is why Jesus prefaces it with so many ways that men fail to pray in a way that pleases God. It's like, here's a way you can fail, 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 here's a way you can fail. We think, generally, there's only two things. Don't pray like the hypocrites who stand, but instead pray like this. Well, don't pray, you know, heaping up phrases, but pray like this. What about just the fact that you actually have to pray? How many of us actually just do that? How many of us actually spend time thinking and praying? Humbly before God, going through and thinking, how have I sinned? How have I not trusted in God's provision? How have I hindered the will of God and the kingdom? Do I actually know my God as the Creator and Father? And how have I been bold to walk into places that I ought not to have walked? Do we think about our praying lives that way? We pray for what God has promised. We walk in the ways God has commanded. And I think... As I close, 
that there is no better way to show this prayer than to read Psalm 23. So let me walk you through why I think this is this prayer in action. Think about these first. I'm going to go through it and then we'll just read it to close. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Give me my daily bread. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Lead me not into temptation. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. But deliver me from evil. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. If we dedicate ourselves to prayer as a people, and we actually begin to ask God to act, do you know what? He will. I, this week, have begun collecting all the different many prayers of God's people in the Scriptures and how He answers them. And already, in a week, it's in double digits. Everything from Hezekiah's prayer, that God would not end his life, and God says, okay, I'll give you 15 years, and more than that, I'll give you a sign so that you will know that that's true. And Hezekiah, although a good king, ended in a squishy way and was basically like, well, I'm glad nothing bad's going to happen till I die. This is the thing that is most striking about all these prayers that I'm collecting. All of them, most of them, are from men and women who are flawed and sinful but trusted God to actually ask Him for things. To actually ask Him. And so this is the test. This is where the rubber meets the road with the Lord's Prayer. Five weeks now on the Lord's Prayer. Will you actually pray? Will you dedicate yourself to personal prayer in your prayer closet where I will not see and you will not see each other and we will not know? You might tell us whether or not you do that, but we will not know. I cannot see as God sees. And will we dedicate ourselves to praying together? Give us this day our daily bread. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Will we pray together? The point of preaching, explaining, giving the meaning of the text is not just so that you will be able to answer some test. What is the Lord's Prayer about? It would be nice if you could pass a test. But that's not the point. The point is... Has it impacted your life and do you trust your Savior more to 
to actually plead with him for the things he has said plead with him for. That's the test. Has it actually impacted your life? I don't know. I know this. The last five weeks thinking about the Lord's Prayer are some of the most personally humiliating times of sermon preparation I think I have ever experienced. Because as I come and I bring this, I just think, 39 years, I have not done this. 39 years, I have not prayed this kind of prayer. 39 years, where in the world have I been? And I would imagine many of you, most of you, all of you, have at times, the last five weeks, felt like, I did not pray that way. I do not pray that way. I didn't really even understand that I should pray that way. And here is the unbelievable thing behind that. God, in His mercy, has answered your non-prayers anyway. Because he knows what you have need of before you ever ask him. This is the care of our Heavenly Father. This is why we can go and say, forgive our debts. Forgive our non-prayer. Help us to actually pray. Don't lead me into temptation. Don't let me sit down to pray. And three minutes later, 30 seconds later, Two seconds later, did I close the door? I better, did I, I left the TV on, I should shut the TV off so I can actually concentrate. What's on TV? I've done it. I know you do it. Lead us not into temptation. There have been some who have thought that the order of the Lord's Prayer is particularly significant. Perhaps. Perhaps. Most, most through history have said the order is not the significant part. It's the pieces that actually matter. And I am not altogether convinced that the first prayer that we ought to make in our praying is lead me not into temptation right now so that I can actually finish this prayer that I can actually do the thing I sat down to do. I don't know what God will do for you, but I do know that He will do far less for you if you do not ask Him. And He will do far more for you if you do. And I've been convinced of this at times when my prayers have been dependent on God and He has abundantly answered. And... During times of famine where I think, God, where are you? But I refuse to pray and say, I need you. Will you answer me in this way? And so he doesn't answer me in that way because I never actually ask him. These are the big things that we have to know from this prayer. And so with all that, let me read to you Psalm 23. And then we will sing together. 
So if, whoever's playing, if you want to come up while I'm reading. Psalm 23, a psalm of David. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures, and he leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. And you anoint my head with oil, and my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen. Let's stand and we will sing today. Father, we are...